This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. My name is Nathan Hobson, and today I'll be speaking with Dr. Emily Baum about her book, The Invention of Madness, State, Society, and the Insane in Modern China. This book was published in 2018 by the University of Chicago Press as part of the studies of the Weatherhead East Asian Institute book series. It's a genealogy of psychiatric modernity, the invention and reinvention of modern mental illness in Beijing, 1901. To 1937. Focusing on the pivotal roles of the city's police-run municipal asylum and the Peking Union Medical College, Baum chronicles the transition from eclectic but largely family-centered pre-modern apprehensions and treatments of mad behaviors to a more unified, biomedical, institutionalized view of madness and mental illness that was intimately linked to questions of social control, political legitimacy, and the rubric of mental hygiene. Along the way, her history of neuropsychiatry's penetration of the administrative and social fabric of modern China examines topics including the disjunctures between state and civil actors concerning new understandings and practices around mental illness, as well as the psychiatric entrepreneurs who profited from and often helped to invent or define new psychiatric conditions. Baum's careful unearthing of these tensions and innovations sheds informative light on the ways in which madness was invented, not just as a top-down administrative or biomedical slash neuropsychiatric project, but in negotiation with a wide range of actors. All right. Well, Dr. Baum, thank you so much for joining us today uh, on the New Books podcast. I'd like you to, if you could first tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and about how you came to this uh, project about the invention of madness in modern China. Yeah, so I unfortunately don't have a great story about how I either got into Chinese history or how I came to this particular project. Um, when I was an undergrad, I originally began as a French major. I was really interested in French history and French culture and French literature. And I only started taking Chinese language classes to fulfill a second language requirement. I had heard that Chinese was the most difficult language. And so I decided I wanted to challenge myself, but I really didn't have any background in Chinese studies. Um, and so I started taking Chinese language. And then in my junior year, and I was at Georgetown at the time, I decided I wanted to study abroad. And um, I petitioned to uh, spend half the year abroad in Beijing and the other half of the year abroad in Paris. And so I get to Beijing. This was the fall of 2004. I was at um, uh, Peking University, and it ended up being just this completely transformative, really eye-opening experience. It was like nothing I had ever experienced before in my life. And um, 
the next semester I went to Paris. And whenever I say this, people always kind of scoff at me, but it was just a terrible time <laughs> for a variety of reasons. <laughs> uh, I mean, Paris itself is wonderful and I've since been mm. back, but uh, there were just sort of a, a confluence of experiences uh, that made it not the, the most memorable time for me. Uh, and so when I got back to Georgetown during my senior year, I decided that I really wanted to turn my attention to Chinese studies, and I ended up adding Chinese as um, a second major. Um, however, at that time, I still hadn't taken any classes in Chinese history, and so I went on to do uh, a master's, and it was when I was doing a master's that I had my first experience uh, learning Chinese history, and, and from there, I was kind of hooked and, and decided that I wanted to apply to PhD programs. Um, when I got to um, my PhD program, and I, I, I was at UC San Diego, I started and I didn't really have a great idea about what I wanted to write my dissertation on. So I was kind of poking around for a project. Um, and one of the things that happened while I was in graduate school was that the topic of mental illness in China was getting a lot of media attention. So a hmm. few years back, um, there was a whole spate of incidents where um, mentally ill men in China were kind of barging into elementary schools and, and were starting to attack children with, with cleavers. It's really awful, but it was all over the, the Western news media at the time. Yeah. And I started thinking to myself, you know, this is really a topic that I don't know a lot about. Um, here, all of these journalists are asking the question, why isn't China doing more to care for its mentally ill people? And why is mental illness so stigmatized in China? And um, I didn't have any great answers for those questions. And so I thought to myself, this could potentially be a really interesting dissertation project. Um, and the summer after my first year in graduate school, I went to Beijing, I went to the Beijing Municipal Archives, and I, I typed in the keyword for mental illness into mm -hmm. the search engine and sort of crossed my fingers, hoping that something would come up. And um, much to my delight and surprise, thousands of records about mental illness from the early 20th century popped up. So I decided that this was going to be uh, my topic and I, and I sort of staked my claim to it. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I Now that you mentioned, I do remember some of those uh, news reports. We had, we had a couple of similar incidents here in Japan, but um, I had forgotten about that in China. It's a very interesting sort of uh, backstory. I think, you know, it's for someone who sort of came, came late to it, uh, that's tremendously fortuitous because it turned into a really interesting project. Um, and it's also sort of fascinating the way that, you know, you found this thing, these these uh, records in the Beijing Municipal Archives. And I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but one of the things that you talk about in your book a little bit is that you also used, you ended up using the Rockefeller Archive Center in New York. And that's, uh, it seemed, uh, this is somewhat surprising to me. And I guess there was also a part of me that thought, you know, the, the Rockefeller Archive is in Sleepy Hollow, if I'm correct, which is, you know, most famous for its visions of headless horsemen. It seems like a strange place to be thinking about <laughs> madness. But um, can you tell me about how sort of the uh, the two archives um, work together, and what do the Rockefellers have to do with uh, the project and the invention of mad the invention of madness um, and the transition transition in China to uh, sort of Western model of neuropsychiatry? Yeah, so um, the Beijing Municipal Archives and the Rockefeller Archive Center were the two major archives that I used in this project. Um, so we'll probably talk a, a bit about this later in the interview. Um, but one of the main institutions that I'm looking at in the book is the Beijing Municipal Asylum, which was the first public asylum to be established in China. It was established in the year 1908. And 
What's sort of interesting about this asylum is that it was run almost entirely by the Beijing Municipal Police Force. Um, and what is really great about the fact that the police ran this asylum, at least from the perspective of a historian, is that the police were really, really good about keeping detailed records on the people who were admitted and discharged from this asylum. So what I was looking at at the Beijing Municipal Archives were all of these police records about this early public asylum in Beijing. Um, and these, uh, these, these police records were just fascinating because not only did they include information that was sort of like a police report, so oftentimes they'd start with um, the police just giving sort of a general report of the situation, such as, you know, he was out making his rounds around Beijing and, and came across a mentally ill man in the street. Um, but what was really great about these particular records is that they often included one or more oral testimonies. So they would include um, testimonies from people who were accusing someone else of being insane. Um, they would uh, include testimonies from families of mentally ill people. And oftentimes they would even include testimonies from individuals who were accused of being insane. Um, hmm. So these particular reports were just incredibly informative for a number of reasons. Um, not only were they able to sort of give me some insight into the mechanics of how the police department and this municipal asylum actually functioned, but they also allowed me to um, kind of peer into the psychology of both the municipal police and local Beijing families, particularly when it came to the question of who qualified as insane uh, and how they made this particular determination. Now, this brings me to the question of how the Rockefellers got involved in all of this. What was interesting yes. about the Rockefeller Foundation is that in the first few decades of the 20th century, the Rockefellers became really, really interested in um, the question of how to improve psychiatric services, both in the United States and outside of the United States. Um, and throughout the early 20th century, there was a very famous teaching hospital in Beijing called the Peking Union Medical College, mm -hmm. uh, which was run under the auspices of the Rockefeller Foundation. And starting in the early 1930s, the Peking Union Medical College uh, began to turn its attention to this police-run public asylum in Beijing, and they decided that they wanted to try to convert this asylum into a state-of-the-art uh, very modern, very scientific, psychopathic hospital. And so um, this transition from uh, turning uh, the asylum into a psychopathic hospital, all of these records were actually housed at the Rockefeller Foundation archives in Sleepy Hollow, New York. And so it's sort of um, the Beijing Municipal Archives and the Rockefeller Foundation archives were sort of two bookends of the story. That's really interesting. Yeah, the, the the story of the involvement of the Rockefellers. I I certainly had no idea about that until I picked up the book, and it's 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 a fascinating. I think part of the Rockefeller legacy that I you know I just never encountered uh, until now. So thanks for telling us about that. Um, so this this brings us to the part where we dive uh, into the book at, uh, into sort of you know chapter by chapter. Um, but before we do that, um, I wanted to do uh, just a couple of sort of definitions of terms to make sure we're all talking about the same thing here. Um, so first off, you describe your book as a genealogy of the invention and reinvention of madness in early 20th century Beijing, uh, from which you and you sort of delimit this as 1901 to 1937. Um, so. First off, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about why those, why that time period, um, and also the question of you know genealogy as a methodology. 
Right. So when I'm talking about a, a genealogy of madness, obviously I'm, I'm using the, the Foucauldian term, but what I'm, I'm trying to get at is that conceptions of madness changed a huge amount over the course of this relatively short period of time. So I actually start the book in um, the late Qing, so toward the end of the 19th century, uh, in the first decade of the 20th century. And one of the things that I show in the early chapters of the book is that prior to the 20th century, um, madness wasn't necessarily thought about as a discrete condition uh, or as a condition that necessarily required a specialist to treat it. Uh, instead, um, prior to the 20th century and throughout most of late imperial China, madness was really thought about more as like a symptom uh, and mm -hmm. usually a transitory symptom of some sort of underlying issue or imbalance. Um, by the time we get to the 20th century, however, madness is suddenly starting to be talked about as a particular type of medical condition. Uh, it's a medical condition that requires the attention of specialized practitioners like psychiatrists. It's a condition that requires specialized institutions like asylums. And it's a condition that requires uh, really specialized focused treatments. Um, and so in this sense, I'm tracing a genealogy of how madness uh, comes to be looked at as sort of a transitory symptom uh, to almost like a, a genre of medical condition in and of itself. Um, and the reasons that I go from around 1901 to 1937 is that starting in 1901, uh, this is when the Qing dynasty begins to implement a whole series of what it refers to collectively as uh, the new policies, and these new policies were meant to kind of modernize China. Uh, and it was as a result of the new policies that not only is the first modern police department created, uh, but it's also uh, during this decade that we see the establishment of the first public asylum in China. Uh, and then I end the study in 1937 because this is when uh, the Second Sino-Japanese War uh, begins and uh, records become a little bit more scattered after the, the Japanese begin to take over uh, uh, Beijing. Right. Yeah. So um, the other uh, the other thing that I wanted to sort of clarify before we we jump into the individual chapters um, is some is some some more terminology here. Um, and so you've you've touched on this a little bit, but this idea of the sort of invention of madness um, and exactly what you mean by invention in this sense. Um, and the other one is the, this idea, which I think is really compelling, this, this phraseology of psychiatric modernity. And I took this to be sort of a nod to Rogaski's idea of hygienic modernity. Um, but if you could please clarify that for us and for the listeners, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll just take both of these terms one at a time. So obviously mm -hmm. the book is called The Invention of Madness. And just as a disclaimer, when I say The Invention of Madness, I don't mean to imply or to give the impression that madness somehow didn't exist in China right. uh, prior to the early 20th century or that the Chinese somehow didn't recognize madness as a legitimate medical condition. Uh, they most certainly did. They had lots of vocabulary words to describe it. Um, but one of the reasons that I use the term um, invention is because, um, well, as we move from the late 19th century to the early 20th century, the meanings and the practices that are associated with madness are just constantly changing uh, and are constantly being transformed. So in that sense, uh, we are talking about a sort of discursive invention of madness. Um, but the other reason that I use the term invention uh, has more to do with um, historiographical questions. Hmm. So if you've read books on Republican era China, 
Um, what you'll probably find is that a lot of historians are very concerned with the concept of modernity, uh, and they're very concerned with um, trying to determine uh, or trying to describe um, the intellectual and political goal to become modern. Um, what I was trying to do in the invention of madness is to sort of go one step beyond that intellectual desire for modernity. And instead, I wanted to show exactly how uh, these new psychiatric ideas and institutions and vocabularies were actually understood and implemented in the course of everyday life. And so ultimately, what I argue in the book is that this intellectual desire for medical modernity was really just the first step in a much longer process. Um, once new psychiatric ideas were translated uh, and sort of digested and introduced into uh, Chinese society, they end up taking on a life of their own. They were understood in different ways by different people. They were implemented in different ways by different people. Uh, and they were also misunderstood in different ways by different people. So in other words, what I'm trying to get at in the book is that these new ideas of madness weren't just sort of imposed onto Chinese society because of this intellectual desire for medical modernity, uh, but instead these new ideas and these new meanings were continuously being invented and reinvented um, by the Chinese people in ways that not only made sense to them, but also in ways that were useful to them. So mm -hmm. that's kind of the second um, way that I use the term invention. It's, uh, it's a way to sort of emphasize or insist on um, the dynamic and continuous process by which madness was accruing new meanings uh, in early 20th century China. Um, and then your second question was about the term psychiatric modernity uh, and uh, if it's sort of like Ruth Rogaski's use of the term hygienic modernity. Mm -hmm. um, so hygienic modernity, and I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with this term, but as Ruth Rogaski uses this term, she uses it to sort of describe the idea uh, that hygiene and hygienic practices are, are, are a critical component of modernity, right? That if the Chinese want to become modern, then they have to start at the most basic level of like washing their hands and refrigerating their food and controlling uh, where people go to the bathroom. Uh, and that if they can have this sort of elemental control over their bodies, then their bodies will become stronger, that populations as a whole will become more disciplined, and that ultimately this will make the nation uh, healthier and stronger and more unified and more modern. Um, and so you're exactly right that when I was thinking about psychiatric modernity, I'm sort of thinking about it in this broader sense of hygienic modernity. And I think we can kind of conceptualize psychiatric modernity as being a part of hygienic modernity, that it would sort of fall under the broader rubric of mm -hmm. hygienic modernity. Um, but more specifically, you know, when I, when I use this term psychiatric modernity, I'm really referring to all of the ideas and vocabularies and institutions and treatments and so on that, that comprise the study of what at the time was referred to as scientific psychiatry mm -hmm. uh, in early 20th century, in the early 20th century world. So what the Chinese were trying to do was they were trying to um, implement different aspects of scientific psychiatry in the Chinese context. They established psychiatric institutions like asylums. Uh, they started to train psychiatric experts. They began to integrate discussions of forensic psychiatry into the legal code. They uh, created new vocabulary words, neologisms for uh, psychiatric disorders like schizophrenia. 
they experimented with new psychiatric treatments. And so all of these efforts, I sort of collectively refer to as psychiatric modernity. Yeah, thank you. That was super helpful. Uh, and I think it will really help uh, listeners to follow us through the book as we jump into the chapters. Um, and so as you said, uh, your first chapter, which is called Contracting the Mad Illness in uh, the big inverted comma scare quotes, um, is a, sort of the, the prequel. It's the it's the prehistory uh, before 1901. So the late Qing China, um, how madness, insanity uh, was conceptualized and dealt with before uh, you get the, uh, the sort of developments in the 20th century you've begun to talk about. Um, and in this chapter, I mean, you argue that during this time, people, uh, and I'm just quoting you here, considered madness a simultaneously biological, emotional, supernatural, and moral issue. And it's all, and also one that was linked to a, a really diverse constellation of causalities, including psychosomatics, um, internal balance, external factors, environmental factors, also gender, etc. Um, and so I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about um, some of the ways in which uh, madness, insanity, mad behaviors were understood and treated um, prior to the 20th century. And I know you started to talk about this a minute ago, but if you could get into some of the more specifics, that'd be great. Right. So um, prior to the 20th century, madness was really dealt with in um, a variety of ways. And the ways it was handled often depended on the perceived source of the madness. So as you mentioned, in some cases, madness was thought to derive from a physical source, like a bodily imbalance or some sort of illness. Um, And if that was the case, then it may have been treated through physical means. So um, one of the major etiologies of madness in uh, late 19th century China uh, was, uh, it was believed that madness was caused by an accumulation of mucus in the chest, that if mucus accumulated in the chest, then this would somehow um, choke off the flow of qi or vital energy, uh, and this would cause a person to go insane. And so a lot of treatments for madness involved things like purgatives and emetics or to force the, the person to vomit up uh, this mucus that had accumulated in the chest. Um, in other cases, madness was believed to derive from supernatural sources, such as, for instance, a deceased ancestor might be punishing you for failing to be sufficiently filial, and they might punish you by causing you to go insane. Uh, and if it was believed that this was the cause of madness, then a family might hire a shaman or a faith healer or a Taoist priest uh, to uh, recite prayers or chants and to somehow expel uh, the demonic spirit or the uh, evil ancestor who is causing the madness. Um, in certain situations, madness was attributed to external environmental sources. So I've read medical case records where they talk about madness as being the result of someone who was out working in the fields in a very, very hot day uh, and the extreme heat and the uh, labor that their body was uh, undertaking caused them to go mad. And then finally, in in some situations, madness was simply attributed to um, social or emotional causes. Um, A lot of times when it came to women, uh, people understood the source of their madness as deriving from heartbreak. Uh, And there was also a very familiar trope of men who had studied for years and years and years for the civil service examination. And if they did not pass the examination, uh, then uh, all of their accumulated frustrations would cause them to go mad. 
Um, so madness was really thought about in a, a wide variety of ways and the ways that people attended to the disorder and the ways that they treated the disorder really um, depended to a large extent on the perceived source. Yeah. And, and that's, it's such a great setup, the sort of you know, tremendous diversity of uh, approaches uh, and then what you start talking about in chapter two, uh, which is called Birth of the Chinese Asylum, 1901 to 1908, is I think in many ways, you know, how that diversity of understandings and approaches and treatments uh, begin to be sort of, you know, narrowed and funneled down and unified around this sort of institutionalized idea of modern madness. Um, and this is what you, you know, you're talking about in chapter two, the beginning of that, um, these uh, beginning of sort of modern regimes of mental health in China. Um, linking new definitions of madness and methodologies and ideologies of social control, which is a really, I think, important point in this chapter. Um, at one point, actually, you quite, I thought, memorably referred to this as this whole sort of phenomenon as the casual convergence of madness, uprootedness, vagrancy, and illicit speech. Um, and you know that in a particularly modern way, the police, and, and you know, you've talked about how the police were very heavily involved with this, um, tended to associate mental rehabilitation with labor and economic viability, which, also, which struck me as a very uh, modern sort of way of thinking about things. Um, and so can you tell us about the, the sort of um, shift from what I understood to be uh, in, in chapter one, you talk about a kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the treatment of the, uh, the mad, the insane people exhibiting mad behaviors as being very much family centered, right? And this sort of shift right. toward a more institutional kind of understanding of and treatment of madness. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how that actually played out in this first two decades of uh, the 20th century? Right. So um, throughout the, the Qing dynasty, um, the real responsibility for caring for the mentally ill fell on the backs of uh, the family, uh, or in some cases, neighbors or the local community. And it was really only in situations when um, either the family was not available or uh, around to care for the mentally ill person, uh, or if the mentally ill person was just so seriously deranged and violent that the family had no physical means uh, to keep them restrained at home, only then um, would uh, officials kind of step in, would the state step in. And in, in those instances, uh, the mentally ill may have been temporarily kept within a local jail. Uh, but prior to the 20th century, there was no such thing as a specialized institution uh, purely for the insane, right? So there's no such thing as an asylum uh, prior to uh, you know, the first decade of the 20th century in China. Now, when the uh, Beijing Municipal Asylum gets built in 1908, as I previously said, it was put under the control of the municipal police force. And um, the, po the police force, you know, these people weren't specially trained to recognize someone who was mentally ill. Um, they hadn't really been given any specialized training uh, about what to do with someone who was mentally ill. All they had been told, really, uh, was that it was their responsibility to ensure that order was maintained in the capital city. And so a lot of what they did um, was they would go out looking for people who could potentially cause trouble, people who could potentially cause disturbances. Uh, and even if these people hadn't necessarily broken the law, even if these people hadn't necessarily done anything that was criminal or that ran against the criminal code, um, a lot of times the police would write them up and put them in an institution. Um, and what's interesting about um, the early municipal asylum is that it wasn't 
thought about as a unique standalone institution. It was actually created as an attachment to the Beijing Municipal Poorhouse. So it actually shared the same physical structure as the poorhouse, and it often shared the same residence as the poorhouse. And so a lot of times when the Beijing Municipal Police were out doing their rounds, uh, and they came across people who were vagrant or homeless, or who looked like they could potentially be stirring up trouble, um, the, the police would arrest these individuals and put them in the poorhouse. And sometimes it would turn out that these people were mentally ill and their label in police files would be changed from a vagrant person to a mentally ill person. Um, and so all of these people were sort of kind of mixed together um, in this institution. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, and, and this, I think, is part of um, the, the shift that you describe as sort of, you know, moving from um, in Qing China, this idea of sort of mad behavior as symptomatic to, um, you know, what you referred to as a, a madness being transformed into a regulatory identity, which I thought was a really interesting point you're making here. And so sort of the way that, you know, madness becomes a label, an identity, part of a bureaucratic system of, so, uh, you know, part of the social control that you're talking about. So can you tell me uh, sort of about how the the everyday workings of the asylum uh, sort of play out, especially because it's, you know, connected to the poorhouse and it's being run by the police? I mean, I, I just can't I can't quite visualize how that would actually work in in a, in a sort of practical sense, also in terms of the physical space. So anything you could tell us more about that would be great. Right. Um, well, it's difficult to say concretely what the physical space looked like because there aren't any diagrams from this uh, this early iteration of the asylum. Later in 1916, the asylum was, was physically separated from the poorhouse and moved to its own separate location. We have more records about, about that time. Um, but usually what would happen is that if someone, um, if, for instance, the police comes across someone in the streets that they believe to be mentally ill, they would often take this person off the streets, bring them into a local police precinct, and then they would interrogate them. Uh, and this is where we have all of those wonderful police records with oral testimonies. Right. Um, and so the police would interrogate these, these people who they suspected to be mentally ill, and they would keep them imprisoned at a local police precinct while these records were then passed along to the chief of police. And the chief of police, he would go over um, the records that the police had compiled. He would look at the oral testimonies that had been collected uh, from these potentially mentally ill people. And on the basis of this case file alone, without having actually ever met um, the person who was accused of being mentally ill in person, uh, then the chief of police would make a determination about A, whether or not this person was actually mentally ill, and B, whether or not this person required institutionalization. Uh, and so if it was determined the person was mentally ill, then the police would remove this person from the police precinct, from the jail, and transfer him or her to the asylum. Um, now, the asylum, as I said, was mainly managed by the police. So the police were in charge of funding the institution, of staffing it. Um, 
And they were the ones, again, who were processing admittances into and out of the institution. Um, There was a practitioner of Chinese medicine who um, worked at the asylum, uh, but this person tended to play a relatively minor Hmm. role in comparison to that of the police. Um, There aren't a huge number of medical records that were left behind um, from the asylum. The only medical records that we see are when a person is severely, severely ill and are about to die. And my uh, reading of these documents is that this was sort of like um, a a preemptive a kind of preemptive way to avoid accusations of abuse at the asylum. Uh, but aside from these records, when a person is essentially on their deathbed, we don't have many medical records about what treatment was like at the asylum. Yeah, that's really, that, um, well, I'm sorry, that's really interesting because I think it, it, it plays very well into this, you know, overall argument you have about the, the function of the asylum as essentially being one of social control. I mean, it's you know, paired with the poorhouse. It's not really a medical facility. It's, you know, run by the police. What medical records we have are more of this sort of, you know, bureaucratic, uh, cover your rear end kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Precisely. And this is definitely an institution uh, of social control. They're not necessarily emphasizing rehabilitation. Um, they want people to be rehabilitated so that they can then enter back into community, into the community. Um, but uh, it's mainly an institution that emphasizes keeping these people off the street so that they can't create trouble. Right. Um, so this, this actually uh, sort of this story continues um, in chapter three, uh, which you've titled "The Institutionalization of Madness: 1910s and 1920s." Um, in this chapter, you you uh, one of the I think the most important things you do here, and I thought it was actually rather delightful in a way. You identify this sort of state society disjuncture as central to understanding this period. What was that? disjuncture that uh, that you've identified and sort of can you tell us what you mean by that um, in terms of you know madness as a, a tool of social control of the, of the police versus madness you know becoming sort of a tool of the people in a way right so by the time we get to the 19 teens and the 1920s um, ordinary families in Beijing had begun to recognize that the police were starting to assert control over the mentally ill and what this meant to them was that, Um, The responsibility for housing the mentally ill and taking care of the mentally ill was no longer a primarily familial Mm -hmm. one, right? Now, this was the responsibility that could at least partly uh, be put on the municipal police. And so what starts to happen in the 19-teens and 1920s is what I refer to as a decreased tolerance on the part of families um, for mentally ill people. So rather than reaching out to state authorities when someone was severely disabled or severely violent, what we start to see in these records is that families begin to reach out to the municipal police when it comes to individuals who we might consider to be merely um, problematic or disruptive. (laughs) And a lot of times uh, these cases involve women who are sort of challenging uh, the patriarchal order. So more and more families are asking the police to intervene on their behalves and to institutionalize these problematic people. Now, the problem arises um, because this asylum actually does not contain a lot of space. Uh, it could uh, safely contain about 80 people, although at any given time, it was probably more like 120 uh, something people who were who were uh, 
housed within the municipal mm-hmm. asylum. And so the police department is constantly trying to get people out of the asylum while families are constantly trying to put people into the asylum. Uh, And so that's what I am referring to when I say that this disjuncture is arising between uh, the desires of local families and the um, capabilities of the state to accommodate all of these demands. Yeah, I thought this was really interesting, this sort of... um you know, the, the, the ironic in, inversion here that happens, uh, you know, it's a great lesson in sort of unintended consequences, I guess. Um, and I also thought, I thank you for, for bringing up this sort of question, uh, particularly of the, you know, the gendered aspect of um, how mental illness uh, was sort of identified, you know, as, because I think your, your, your point about, you know, families um, treating uh, dis- so-called, you know, disruptive women or, you know, disobedient women as somehow you know, problematic and therefore mentally ill. Again, that sort of plays in a different way into this whole question of um, in the legitimacy of individual behavior and how that fits into models of social control. And so I thought this was a really sort of st- strength of this chapter. Um, and another really interesting aspect of the chapter for me was your attention to the budding role of print media, which you talk uh, you know about also right. in... Um, in chapter four, um, but in sort of, you know, these disseminating ideas about madness and mental illness in the public sphere, particularly if, if, if it's okay, I'd love if you could talk about figure 3.1, uh, <laughs> which is, uh, it's got the, the, the caption is mad men should be controlled. Um, can you tell us right. if, a little bit about the picture, where it's from, what it shows and why that's significant? I thought it was a great illustration of some of the points you're trying to make in the chapter. Yeah, so one of the points that I make in this chapter and also in in chapter four is that the media is playing a really critical role in publicizing the idea that, um, you know, in the 20th century, madness has now at least partly become the jurisdiction of the police. And so in this chapter, um, I have this image from a Beijing-based pictorial uh, and the image uh, shows a, a policeman who looks like he's sort of tentatively approaching a mad person. And we can tell that this is a mad person because his body is all distorted and he is clothed in tattered rags. Um, but if you read the accompanying caption, and there's an accompanying text, which you have to be literate to be able to read. But if you read this text, it's actually admonishing the policeman for not doing more to control this mad person. So the, the accompanying text says, policeman, yeah, you not only didn't control this madman, but you were laughing and, and causing a ruckus alongside him. You know, what the heck do you think you're doing? Uh, and so this image really drives home um, the, the public acknowledgement that madness has now become, at least to a certain extent, the responsibility of the police. Yeah, and I thought this, it also, to, to me, it spoke to the sort of internalization of this whole discourse of madness, you know, in, in and of itself, um, not just in the sense of police and social control, but that it was, you know, a sort of social, a part of the, 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 the shared lexicon in the, in the public sphere. Um, and this, I think, leads really well into what you're talking about in chapter four, uh, which has the, the Great title, uh, if I may say so, the psychiatric entrepreneur, uh, 1920s, 1930s. So you introduced this term, the psychiatric entrepreneur. Can you tell us what that means um, and how it's central to this chapter? Yeah, sure. So the psychiatric entrepreneur is a, is a term that I've created, uh, and I use it to characterize anyone who was trying to make money off of madness. Right. Uh, and so this includes uh, 
businessmen who sold proprietary medicines that were specifically targeted at uh, people who were suffering from madness. And it also includes um, uh, individuals and businessmen who established private psychiatric hospitals. These private psychiatric hospitals were really aimed at an upper class clientele. Uh, These were people whose families probably would not have wanted to institutionalize them at the Beijing Municipal Asylum with the rest of the ragtag group of, um, you know, vagrant and and homeless and usually poor uh, insane. So psychiatric entrepreneurs are people who are trying to get rich off of madness. Yeah. And and I'm glad that you brought up this sort of class question, because I think it's one of the other fascinating aspects of the chapter. Um, In addition to talking about the private hospitals, the proprietary medicines, um, you know, because you're talking about a sort of consumer culture of mental illness in a way. I mean, you you, you focus a great deal on class in uh, the selling of madness. Uh, In particular, I I just, you know, as um, having thought about this in a Japanese context, I was particularly interested in um, the construction of neurasthenia as a kind of elite madness, in a sense. Um, And so I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more uh, about how madness and class, uh, you know, what the the nexus between the two and how that played out. Right. So um, one of the points that I'm making in this chapter is that um, these psychiatric entrepreneurs weren't just... um, responding to a demand for new health services, but that they were actually actively working to create right. a demand uh, where there hadn't necessarily been one before. Um, and I show that they, they do this in, in two ways. So first of all, these psychiatric entrepreneurs, as I say, they, they kind of rebrand, if I can put that in right, scare yeah. quotes, they're kind of rebranding madness so that madness seems like a morally neutral condition. Um, in a lot of their advertisements, the people who required the help of proprietary medicines, uh, these people were not criminals, they were not vagrants, uh, but instead these were hardworking folks who had spent too many hours at their office, uh, who experienced too much stress at work, who had overtaxed their brains. Uh, and so rather than associating madness with criminality or poverty, suddenly madness starts to signal that you're a hard worker and an upstanding citizen. Um, And then the second way that these psychiatric entrepreneurs are uh, creating a demand for their their goods and services is by introducing new categories of madness. And as you said, one of the categories that they introduce is neurasthenia. Um, Neurasthenia um, is probably not a very familiar (laughs) familiar word to um, listeners today, but throughout the late 19th and early 20th centuries, um, this was an extremely popular psychiatric diagnosis. Um, neurasthenia was first uh, discovered in uh, the 1860s in the United States. And then this diagnosis just spreads all throughout the Western world. And it even makes its way to Japan. And it makes its way to China. Um, and neurasthenia was supposed to be a disorder that affected Um, intellectuals and businessmen and members of the elite classes who thought too much, who overtaxed their brains. Um, And so interestingly, what happens is that a lot of people in China wanted to be labeled a neurasthenic because it was one way that they could signal that they're part of this elite intellectual class. Um, And one of the ways they could do so was by taking proprietary medicines that were targeted at um, uh, 
Yeah. And like I said, I mean, I, you know, sort of thought I'd been reading this through the lens, you know, as a Japanese historian, reading it through that lens, you know, the, the precisely the same phenomenon is happening in Japan. And of course, you know, as you mentioned in the U.S., there's a wonderful book called you know, Neurasthenia Nation, which is all about how you know, neurasthenia is a, a point of pride for America. You know, we're so modern that we got this disease before everyone else. You know, it's like it, it's modernity. It's you know, it personified in a way for these sort of you know elite exactly. intellectuals. I just it's such it's such a fascinating thing that you know China you know, Chinese intellectuals are participating in this same kind of cosmopolitan modern culture of mental illness. If that's you know even a, a, the right way to say it. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, what's also interesting is that um, neurasthenia is, is no longer a, a category that we recognize in um, psychiatric medicine in the United States today, um, but it continues to be a, a recognizable category in China. Japan too. There's a very famous yeah. anthropologist. Yeah. Yeah, really. Yeah. Um, there's a, a very famous anthropologist named Arthur Kleinman who studied neurasthenia, um, I guess, around the 19th the 1990s in China, and he said that neurasthenia was, um, at that time, the second most commonly diagnosed psychiatric disorder under really? schizophrenia. So oh. it continues to be hugely huh. popular. Yeah, yeah. I think in Japan, you hear it more often as the name of a card game, actually. Uh, the card game Memory, yes, uh, really? is, is referred to as neurasthenia <laughs> in, in, in Japan, yeah, because I guess it wears yeah. down your nerves having to remember which cards are paired with which. Um, but that's actually how I learned the word first. And I didn't realize that it was a psychological or psychiatric diagnosis until many years later. Anyway, that's something of a divergence from the book. So let's let's get back to the book. And I want to move on to chapter five, um, which is titled, entitled uh, From Madness to Mental Illness, 1928 to 1935. Um, and in this chapter, you take up the issue of uh, madness and mental illness, particularly in its relationship to state power. Um, and you argue that the newly uh, unified slash reunified Chinese state under the Kuomintang, under the KMT, played a critical role in institutionalizing neuropsychiatry in Beijing. And I thought this was, you know, you, you link this to um, the sort of self-legitimization of the government and consolidation of its political power. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So how was madness linked to state power? So in um, 1933, um, the... Kuomintang enters into an agreement with the Peking Union Medical College um, to transform this old, defunct, police-run asylum into a state-of-the-art psychopathic hospital. And the psychopathic hospital would employ psychiatric experts, and it would use uh, the most modern and up-to-date psychiatric treatments and psychiatric technologies. Um, And... What I show in this chapter is that one of the reasons that the Kuomintang was really interested in participating in this project was because by undertaking um, this uh, modernization of medicine and by undertaking uh, this project to modernize psychiatric services in Beijing, um, it would not only signal the legitimacy and the power of the Kuomintang regime, but it would also allow them to distance themselves from their warlord predecessors. In a lot of uh, Guomindang materials during this time, they'll talk about how, you know, the, the earlier warlord governments didn't care at all for the health of its people. And you could tell that they didn't care about the health of its people because just look at this uh, terrible uh, asylum that existed that was very abusive where people were kept in chains uh, that was run by uh, the municipal police who didn't know anything. 
uh, about scientific psychiatry, right? The police were just terribly unenlightened. Uh, and then we can juxtapose it to this very modern medical facility. And so this was a way that the Guomindang were trying to signal both to their to their people, to the Chinese people, but also to the Western world, uh, that they were the one legitimate uh, governing power. Yeah, so it seemed to me in, in many ways, this is kind of the, the culmination of that idea of psychiatric modernity as a subset of hygienic modernity. Uh, if I recall, there's you know some some moves in the medical community at the same time, um, thinking about you know nutrition uh, and other aspects of hygienic of of hygienic modernity that are uh, you know sort of also, if I recall correctly, um, being played out at the PUMC at the Peking uh, Union Medical College um, as this sort of projection of state power both domestically and internationally. So um, one of the one of the sort of other uh, really interesting um, and provocative arguments you make at a number of points throughout the book, but particularly here in chapter five, is that the modern medicalization of madness and mental illness and its treatment gained a kind of cultural credence in the early 20th century, despite and, and this is what's sort of interesting, that despite this manifestly low cure rate, right, that the treatments are demonstrably not particularly effective. And this was very striking to me when you're talking about the Peking Union Medical College, the PUMC, and its sort of adoption and endorsement of these modern neuropsychiatric practices. So, so what, is, what is the sort of utility of psychiatric, of this neuropsychiatry, if it doesn't have uh, much effect in actually treating the, the, the illnesses, the diseases that it's identifying? Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's this uh, huge disjuncture between um, what psychiatry could describe at the time and what sort of treatments they could actually affect. Um, by the turn of the 20th century, um, German and American uh, psychiatrists had made a lot of discoveries about um, the causes of mental illness. Um, they had begun to link um uh, syphilis to general paralysis of the insane. Um, and so they could describe what sort of effects these, um, these types of diseases had on the morphology of the cerebral cortex, uh, but they were pretty much powerless to affect any sort of change uh, to uh, actually effectively treat uh, many of these people throughout the 19-teens and the 1920s. I mean, this was before the time of antipsychotic drugs. Um, most of my narrative takes place um, before uh, you know, electroshock therapy and the invention of the lobotomy. And so there was very little that psychiatric experts um, could do uh, to manage or treat mentally ill patients. And so a lot of um, what these psychiatric experts are doing is, uh, first, they're engaging in research, um, but a lot of what they're doing is purely symbolic. And particularly from the Guomindang's perspective, this is, again, uh, a symbol to the Chinese people and a symbol to the Western world that China is capable of undertaking um, change, that China is capable of embracing uh, a scientific modernity, and that the Guomindang itself uh, is the legitimate ruling power. Yeah. Um, within this, uh, I mean, it seemed to me that uh, you, you've identified um, 1934 as a, a watershed. Um, so what what is it about 1934? What what changes occur in the psychiatric therapy and management regime in Beijing? So I think 
one of the main changes that we see when the asylum is transformed into a psychopathic hospital is that the emphasis now is no longer just on confinement of the insane, um, but the emphasis instead shifts to rehabilitation of the insane. And, and again, um, the methods that they could actually use to rehabilitate mentally ill people was very, very limited. Um, but what they did try to do, just as one example, um, one of the treatments that was often used at the psychopathic hospital, something that they referred to as occupational therapy. And occupational therapy involved um, teaching patients a useful skill. So women would watch what would wash sheets or weave. Um, men were taught how to make soy milk. Um, and this served a couple of purposes. Um, on the one hand, it was thought of as a type of rehabilitation and a type of therapy because it was believed that when patients were involved in um, these laboring activities that their mind was focused on one task and this would help them snap out of their mental illness, especially for people who, who may, may not have been uh, severely mentally ill. But on the other hand, um, occupational therapy uh, was also believed to be helpful in enabling these patients to become economically self-sufficient uh, or at least uh, to enable them to become contributors to the household economy once they were released from the psychopathic hospital so that they wouldn't just end up in this uh, vicious cycle of being released from the institution only to find their way back into the institution a couple months later. Yeah, thank you. So again, I mean, this this connection between you know work, productivity, and control um, is it's one of these very interesting through lines that you have throughout the whole book. Um, and in the final chapter, which is mental hygiene and political control, 1928 to 1937, um, you take some of these through lines like that um, and expand them out from Beijing to think about the national picture a lot more. Uh, so I have two questions about this, right? So first um, you talk about the concept of mental hygiene and, and that it's becoming fully established in a shared you know, sort of national lexicon or framework. Um, and that this has two main facets. One is the welfare of the afflicted. The other is the social control aspect. Um, what specifically was meant by mental hygiene at this point? Um, and where did this concept uh, come from? And how is it playing sort of into this international discourse we've touched on a little bit? Um, and I'll ask the second question after that, I guess. Um, right. So mental hygiene uh, originally developed as a concept in the United States um, through the work of a man named Clifford Beers. Um, and Clifford Beers himself had struggled with mental illness. He had been institutionalized for many years. He had suffered a lot of abuse at the hands of um, physicians and staff at these psychiatric hospitals. And so when he was finally rehabilitated and released from these institutions, he starts a uh, nationwide mental hygiene movement. And the original goal of the mental hygiene movement was simply to improve the treatment that was given to the mentally ill. Um, over time, however, the, the concept of mental hygiene um, starts to um, be imbued with, with different connotations. It begins to adopt a sort of more prophylactic connotation. Um, so people begin to think, you know, rather than just um, treating the insane retroactively after they've already been institutionalized, uh, perhaps what we should do is develop methods to stop mental illness uh, before it even begins. 
And so what occurs is that um, psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers um, begin a, their search for the early signs and symptoms of mental illness so that they can uh, prevent mental illness from occurring. Um, and in their frantic search for these early kernels of, of mental illness, um, psychiatrists and social workers begin to hone in on all sorts of people who we might consider to be uh, mm -hmm. deviant. So truant children, um, housewives who cheated on their husbands, uh, prostitutes, people who engaged in same-sex relationships. Um, and all of these people start to be talked about as targets of this mental hygiene movement. And because of that, um, these people also start to be thought about as potentially mentally ill. Uh, now, this concept of mental hygiene uh, not only sweeps the United States, but it kind of like the concept of neurasthenia uh, gets international attention. It goes to Canada and Germany and France and Japan and China. And a lot of Chinese intellectuals who had studied abroad in the United States, when they come back to China in the 1930s, introduced the concept of mental hygiene into a Chinese context. And so in uh, the late 1930s, they develop um, uh, uh, an association, uh, the Chinese Association for Mental Hygiene. They put together a magazine that's devoted to the study of mental hygiene, uh, and they begin uh getting into talks with government agents and local hospitals to see how they might start to implement mental hygiene clinics throughout China. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so my, my second question is, um, you know, this, this, this chapter, uh, chapter six, mental hygiene, political control um, is, you know, expands out to talk about the national picture, as, I, as, as I've said, how was the national picture different from the picture uh, in Beijing during this decade, right? So, I mean, the first uh, five chapters of the book trace that sort of uh, movement first from uh, late Qing and this uh, sort of more symptomatic idea of madness that's primarily a matter for individuals and families to an institutionalized context uh, that focuses around the Beijing Municipal Asylum. Um, and, you know, we bring this up to the Kuomintang era, um, but it it seems, I think, and I think it's probably fairly obvious to listeners that that's not going to be what the picture looks like nationwide. So what was different about the way that mental illness was conceptualized outside of the, the capital, uh, sort of these, these big metropoles? You know, I don't know whether Shanghai was different than, than Beijing. Yeah, so periodically throughout the book, I, I depart from Beijing and kind of look at what the situation was like in other um major metropoles. Um, and you're right that the situation was quite different, mainly because Beijing was the only city at the time that uh, boasted a public asylum that was run by the mm -hmm. municipal government. Uh, by the time we get to the 1930s, there are other asylums that have uh, popped up throughout China, but most of these asylums are run by missionaries or they're run by foreigners. Um, so there's an asylum in, in Guangzhou that was uh, run by missionaries in Shanghai by the 1930s. Um, uh, foreigners had also established a, a psychiatric hospital called the Mercy Hospital. In Suzhou, there was a missionary-run hospital. In Nanjing, there were plans uh, for a, a psychiatric hospital. Uh, but Beijing was really the only um, city that had um, a, a psychiatric unit that was run uh, by the municipality itself. Um, and so 
you're completely right that the, the story would look quite different had I centered it on a location um, other than Beijing. Um, but by the time we get to the Nanjing decade, and by the time these discourses of mental hygiene are starting to penetrate into China, um, a lot of the same ideas that had been percolating in, in Beijing are also spreading throughout the rest of the country. Um, and because the Guomindang moves the capital from mm-hmm. Beijing to Nanjing, um, Nanjing itself becomes the hub of intellectual activity, particularly when it comes um, to issues relating to um, psychiatric study. So a lot of the big names who are interested in mental hygiene um, were situated at, within Nanjing, uh, and their ideas begin to spread outwards from there. The, the other thing that you, you do in this chapter, which I think is really interesting, is you present this series of vignettes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the vignettes themselves uh, and why they're significant and why you included them? Right. So the, the these four vignettes are actually the last chapter of the book. And um, what I wanted to do in this chapter was to um, take different examples or different case studies um, of the ways that um, different swaths of Beijing society were um, selectively appropriating these new psychiatric ideas um, and the ways that they were continuing to invent new meanings of madness. Um, so the first vignette um, looks at a debate between practitioners of Chinese medicine about whether madness um, is primarily rooted in the heart or in the brain. Um, among Western psychiatrists, they would have said the answer is the brain, but um, many of these practitioners of Chinese medicine believe that madness primarily affects uh, the heart. Uh, and so this debate was kind of their way of wrestling with these new psychiatric discourses while still trying to remain true to their own uh, systems of knowledge. Um, the second vignette looks at the issue of translation, um, and it shows how people may have started to use new psychiatric neologisms, uh, but that they continue to understand them through their own cultural lenses. So they use the vocabulary, but they may have misunderstood the uh, sense of the word as it was originally applied in a Western context. Um, the third vignette shows um, how ordinary people experimented with new psychiatric treatments. Um, and so they you know, went to hospitals, they went to um, uh, psychiatric clinics, but they often continued to voice their own experiences of madness in a relatively traditional vocabulary. And so there was kind of a, a tension between the institutional space, which was very modern and scientific, uh, and the ways that they actually uh, voiced their own experiences and understandings of the condition. And then the final vignette um, looks at a Chinese psychotherapist named Dai Bingham, um, who was hired at the Peking Union Medical College. And his main role there was to try to integrate Chinese cultural concepts into psychiatric treatment at the POMC. Um, so all of these vignettes are trying to illustrate the ways that new ideas and new practices of madness were constantly being um, invented and reinvented across the early 20th century uh, by different types of people and in ways that made sense to them. I think it's particularly interesting for me that that you bring up this question of uh, you know the the translation and how neologisms um, and this you know new vocabulary um, you know, don't necessarily 
uh, you know, there's this sort of Indigo Montoya moment where it's, you know, I don't think that word means exactly what you think it means, um, you know, where, where there's this uh, new lexicon that's being used and this new framework that's being used, but people are still digesting it and actually reproducing it and adapting it to their own circumstances. And the, the some of the differences in the diversity that you talk about, you know, between, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of larger cities and other places um, seem to me to be really important in that. Um, so thank you for uh, talking about that as well. Um, so the last question that I wanted to ask you uh, is about what you're doing now uh, and what kind of future projects you might be up to. Sure. Um, yeah, so I am starting a new project that is um, taking me into a different time period. Um, so I'm looking at uh, fortune telling and divination and all sorts of practices that we might consider occult practices. Um, in the post-49 period. Uh, and this research is not just taking me to mainland China, but I'm also looking at Hong Kong as well. Uh, and so I'm looking at how these sorts of fortune-telling and divinatory practices are used, um, the ways that um, the Chinese government has tried to eradicate them, um, and also why they continue to be so persuasive to people today. So it's going to be a mix of history and ethnography because I want the, the project to go up to the... Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, and I, it's something that uh, we we see a, a significant uh, presence here in Japan as well. So it's something I've thought about as well. So I'll be looking forward to, to that when uh, your research starts coming out on that as well. So, uh, Dr. Baum, thank you great. so much for uh, spending a, a, an hour with us today uh, and talking about your project. Uh, it was great. And I'm looking forward to uh, talking to you in the future and to uh, getting a chance to read some of your new research as well. Thanks so much.